It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. This is part seven of a seven-part series, which means this is the final uh, one in this series called 1940. I, you know, to be honest, you know, just came up with a good excuse to dive back into some World War II messages. It's just such a favorite uh, season of history for me, not because it was easy, almost the opposite, because it was hard. And my parents were born in this exact time period that we're talking about, and uh, I just feel connected to it. My dad was named Winston. at this exact juncture when Winston Churchill was rising up and leading a nation and battling as Great Britain stood all alone uh, against this great power uh, of Adolf Hitler. And so my middle name is Winston, and you've probably heard me say that at different junctures, but I I just feel bonded somehow, some way to this. And uh, this particular message, it's hard to describe. It's called At the Dire Stretch. And it has a lot packaged into it that if you could chew on this and allow it to assimilate into your spiritual life, it could transform you. Uh, This is a leadership model or a leadership pattern as demonstrated first and foremost, as we're going to show by by, uh, Winston Churchill, but in a greater sense and a far greater leadership model is found in Jesus Christ that bears the same striking resemblance, which is why I think Winston Churchill's leadership stands out to me. He's a very flawed and imperfect man, and I do not want you to think that I blindly look at Winston Churchill and see everything as a positive. Uh, I've oftentimes joked, I really don't want to uh, grow up to look like him. He was a little tubby-bellied and uh, smoked cigars and drink brandy. That's not my idea of uh, a great destination for my life. At the same time, I see him handle difficulty or what I'm calling the dire stretch, or as he called the darkest hour, in a way that is highly unusual and is very, very inspiring to my soul. And I think it will be inspiring to yours because it's the way that Jesus walked through the dire stretch that he faced, which we understand is Gethsemane uh, and unto Golgotha. And as a result, there was a profound picture of victory and triumph in the midst of such darkness. So let's let's dive into this final episode at the dire stretch. I have a picture, if you're seeing this via video, uh, of Winston Churchill, and I've always sort of liked this particular picture. He was known as you know, the the old lion. He was known as the, the bulldog, and he sort of looks like a bulldog, I, but he's just such a fascinating-looking character, a fascinating acting character, just such a unique guy to to study, and he his personality matched the face, uh, too. He was a very hilarious, comical character. So there is a quote from a 13th-century rabbi named Nachmanides, And he said this, precisely at the time where one king arises to pillage our possessions and destroy us, another shall arise to protect and save us. This is an important lesson for future generations. It's interesting because here's a Jewish man basically saying that God always cares for his people. And of course, in World War II, the Jews are going to be a central theme, at least to all of us in remembrance of World War II. We're going to remember Hitler's 
uh, racial maneuvers that he was taking where he wanted to preserve the integrity and the purity of this quote-unquote Aryan race, and he wanted to eliminate uh, the Jews, and he felt like they were a blemish upon the perfection of society. Uh, and it's hard not to think back to the fact that Jesus was Jewish, uh, even as you see Hitler and the powers of darkness moving in this direction. But I'm going to read this quote again. I just want you to listen to it in light of how a Jew would think. Precisely at the time where one king arises to pillage our possessions, just think Hitler, and destroy us, another shall arise to protect and save us. This is an important lesson for future generations. The Jews remember Winston Churchill in a way that very few of us may. To him, they, he is one of their greatest heroes, a hero of the entire race, if you want to say it that way. And uh, he stood up and he was the hero uh, or the king that arose to protect and save them. And so let's dive into this. May 10th, 1940. Now, if you've listened to the previous six episodes, you, you would be familiar with the date, May 10th, 1940. This is the date that Winston Churchill is going to be thrust into leadership. This is a day of great embattlement where the Nazis are ending what's called the Twilight War, and they are entering into uh, engagement. They are going to uh, Blitzkrieg, uh, Belgium, uh, Holland, and Luxembourg, and then sweep down into France, and disaster ensues. No one would have ever guessed. I mean, they might have guessed that Belgium and Holland and Luxembourg might fall, uh, but France, the historic strength of Europe, uh, and however, they're going to begin to crumble quickly. Uh, the British are going to try and send their uh, troops over as quickly as they can, but France looks like it's going down so quickly, which is going to lead to uh, a disaster. And I will at least touch on the surface of it as we progress. But I'm calling this the unfair challenge. Many of us might even in certain moments of our life think, hmm, would I ever want to be president of the United States? Would I ever want to? And you you can fill in the, uh, the blank as far as some grand position of leadership or authority. And yet no one really wants Winston Churchill's position here. It's an unfair challenge. That's what I'm calling it. It's the impossible leadership position that Winston Churchill was thrust into it, that he was thrust into. And it, it really is a dramatically difficult situation that he finds himself in. So I'm going to go through 10 leadership challenges that are very evident uh, in this uh, situation at this time, May 10th, 1940. The British people were fearful. He's not leading a nation that is feeling strong. He's leading a nation that is trembling right now, and they feel like their end is very near. Everyone else around them seems to agree as well. France believed that they couldn't last but three weeks. America forsook them as well, saying, yeah, we don't want to put any resources into this because you can't stand uh, that long, and we don't want to just waste it. Leadership challenge number two, the British government was divided. It's not like they were all united saying, okay, let's be fearful together, and let's try and do something to stand against Hitler. They were divided. And so Winston Churchill is inheriting a leadership position where the country is fragmented and it's uh, denominationalized. Leadership challenge number three, the British weren't sure that this war could be won. You know, when you lose the sense that something's possible, it's really hard to invest energy into going after it. And so this is exactly what Winston Churchill is inheriting. It's a despondent nation that is fearful and also does not have the confidence that they can win it, even if they invested all their energies. 
Leadership challenge number four. 70% of the British armed forces were currently surrounded in France and appeared to be lost. So if you've ever heard the story of Dunkirk, it is a magnificent story. And I have to admit, it is one of my favorites. If you listen to my 93 episode Spiritual Lessons from World War II series, I didn't actually directly cover it. I sort of indirectly covered it, sort of like I'm doing here. And it's possibly because I'm thinking, well, everyone already knows the story of Dunkirk. And I don't know if that's true, but it really is an amazing story because 70% of the British armed forces were currently surrounded in France and appeared to be lost. It looked like there was no hope for them. And imagine what it's like for the British uh, nation if they lose... Before they've even you know fought, they've they lose seventy percent of their military strength, which wasn't that big to start with, and you know just at the the very start of this thing, that's not a good situation for Winston Churchill to inherit. Leadership challenge number five: the French were folding, and fast. So Great Britain doesn't seem to have the support of the French. If they have the support of the French, that's you know they're they're pretty strong if you combine France and Great Britain. But if if France folds and forsakes its territory and forsakes its military strength, then Great Britain's on its own. Leadership challenge number six, public opinion in the United States was decidedly against participating in this quote-unquote unwinnable war. And so the only hope in Winston Churchill's mind, if France is going to fall, is that the United States gets involved. However, I don't remember what the numbers were. I was actually looking at it the other day, and I can't quite remember, but it was something like 95, 98% of the United States was against entering this war. That's a very, very stout barrier for Winston Churchill to need to overcome. Leadership challenge number seven, Great Britain didn't have enough money to build a military strong enough to combat this evil. So imagine that they had time and they had resource and they could just start to amass military strength and recruit more soldiers. They don't have enough money to build a military machine. So it's, it's a significant challenge for a prime minister to inherit because what are his options? What can he do to solve the dilemma? Leadership challenge number eight. Italy has seen an opportunity, as Italy would say, that comes every 5,000 years to gain the upper hand on France and Great Britain. They are no longer an ally. So Italy was an ally in World War I, but Italy is going to see a rare opportunity to actually take advantage of France and Great Britain's weakness and join Hitler in his escapades. And so Mussolini, who leads Italy, is going to switch sides this is what is happening as Winston Churchill is inheriting leadership. This is not good. This is very bleak. Leadership challenge number nine. Joseph Stalin is no longer willing to work with Great Britain. Instead, he is going to supply Hitler with his strength. So at least Great Britain, if France falls, has an ally with Joseph Stalin in Soviet Russia. But Joseph Stalin even decides that he doesn't want to work with Great Britain. I think he's licking his chops too. And instead, he's going to supply Hitler with strength to destroy Great Britain. Now, that will shift as the war progresses, but you have to realize the war hasn't progressed. Like, America will enter into this war. That comes after Pearl Harbor in 1941, December 7th, 1941. And so at this point, May 10th, 1940, things are very, very dark. And then finally, leadership challenge number 10. Japan is licking their chops and picking the right time to join this war and take their share of the spoils. Great Britain 
has their work cut out for them. And if you were a betting person at this exact juncture, May 10th, 1940, there's no way you're going to put your bet in on Great Britain. But Great Britain has something. They have a man who seems to have been prepped for this moment. And I would even go as far as to say it's almost hard not to conclude that God prepped him for this moment. And that he seems to be situated in history in just this perfect way to offset these impossibilities. So this screen says, leading in the dark, and I call it the Churchill model. So I'm going to mention five strange things that were built into this man, known as Winston Churchill, before he arrived at this dire stretch. Number one, I'm calling him the readied man. Do you know that he was a Jewish sympathizer before that seemed like it was going to be valuable? And yet he is going to be wired in such a way that he sees Hitler as evil. There were a lot of people at this time that uh, were anti-Semitic, in other words, sort of anti-Jewish, for various reasons. That's always been sort of a common challenge that the Jews have always faced. But it was a, it was a rising sentiment. And however, Winston Churchill was wired differently, just like he was wired differently than the politicians in Parliament. He was the one guy that stood against Hitler and says, this guy is a liar. You cannot trust him. He is taking territories. He's, he's violating the Versailles Treaty. He's building a military war machine. You can't allow him to get away with this. And everyone's like, oh, no, you know, hey, just let him go. He doesn't mean that. No, he's really after peace. However, Winston Churchill was different throughout this whole time. And it's interesting to recognize that he was a Jewish sympathizer. He wasn't Jewish himself, but he cared for the Jews. Isn't that interesting? So here's a quote from Andrew Roberts, who did a documentary called Walking with Destiny. Randolph Churchill, or Winston's father, had many Jewish friends, and upon the untimely early death of his father, these same Jewish friends had looked after young Winston. And when he began his first parliamentary position, he started in Manchester, which consisted of a large Jewish population. So in a strange way, he was readied with a sensitivity towards the Jews. Here's a quote from Winston Churchill, and this is speaking about a time back in 1932. Now, remember, we're in May 10th of 1940, so this is eight years before, and he's in Germany, he's visiting Germany, and he's going to talk about a brush with the idea of Hitler. He, never, he didn't meet Hitler, but he's going to brush against the idea of Hitler. Hitler's going to come into power in 1933. At the Regina Hotel in the summer of 1932, a gentleman introduced himself to some of my party. He was Herr Hans von St Huntstegel, sorry guys, and spoke a great deal about the Fuhrer, with whom he appeared to be intimate. As he seemed to be lively and a talkative fellow, speaking excellent English, I asked him to dine. He gave a most interesting account of Hitler's activities and outlook. He spoke as one under the spell. He had probably been told to get in touch with me. He was evidently most anxious to please. After dinner, he went to the piano and played and sang many tunes and songs in such remarkable style that we all enjoyed ourselves immensely. He seemed to know all the English tunes that I liked. He was a great entertainer, and at that time, as is known, a favorite of the Fuhrer. He said I ought to meet him, and that nothing would be easier to arrange. Herr Hitler came every day to the hotel about five o'clock and would be very glad indeed to see me. I had no national prejudices against Hitler at this time. I knew little of his doctrine or record and nothing of his character. I admire men who stand up for their country in defeat, even though I'm on the other side. He had a perfect right to be a patriotic German if he chose. 
I always wanted England, Germany, and France to be friends. However, in the course of conversation with Hopfenstangle, I happened to say, why is your chief so violent about the Jews? I can quite understand being angry with Jews who have done wrong or are against the country, and I understand resisting them if they try to monopolize power in any walk of life. But what is the sense of being against a man simply because of his birth? How can any man help how he is born? He must have repeated this to Hitler because about noon the next day he came round with a rather serious air and said that the appointment he had made with me to meet Hitler could not take place as the Fuhrer would not be coming to the hotel that afternoon. This was the last I saw of Putzi, for such was his pet name, although we stayed several more days at the hotel. Thus Hitler lost his only chance of meeting me. Later on, when he was all-powerful, I, 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 was, I was to receive several invitations from him, but by that time, a lot had happened, and I excused myself. Isn't that a fascinating story? So these are the five unique things that were already formed in Hitler—not Hitler—in Churchill before May 10th, 1940. Number two, the man willing to stand by himself, the wilderness politician. There was something about Winston Churchill's career in politics and in in leadership that had actually caused him to be alienated. He'd switched from the liberal side to the conservative side uh, multiple times, and he didn't really fit in. And so he was known as a wilderness politician where he didn't really have a party that appreciated him. And he learned to stand by himself. He learned to express views that weren't necessarily congruent with a party's views, but were congruent with his convictions. And that's going to become very, very important in this man as he is being readied. Number three, the man who never learned how to give up. I'm going to call him the dogged man of principle. Every other politician that had gone through what Winston Churchill is going to go through would have given up a long time ago. There is something about this man that just refuses to give up. These are qualities that I am setting on the table that if you were to ponder these and just recognize that these are qualities that change the world around us. And these are things that God desires to build in. For instance, that would be un- that would be understood as perseverance or persistence. These are qualities that are very godly in their nature. It doesn't mean that only godly men or women show them. It's just that they are rather extraordinary when used properly. Number four, the man who had already lost everything already destroyed by Gallipoli. So Gallipoli is a battle from World War I that uh, Churchill was over, the, he was the, the minister of the Navy in World War I, and Gallipoli was a, just an absolute disaster uh, for the Allies, and all the blame for it fell upon Churchill, and he lost his position, and it was devastating. It was a political, a career-ending uh, thing that happened, and yet here he is all these years later, and he's suddenly thrust into the position of the greatest leadership position a man could have in the world at this time. And uh, it was after he lost everything. And I think there's something there. Many of us have never lost everything in our life. And yet to lose everything, to open up your hand and just give it all up. If you don't lose everything, you can't gain that true trusted position in the kingdom of heaven. You have to pick up a cross. You have to deny yourself to follow Jesus. And in a strange way, Churchill's going to model that by losing everything before he's actually fit and ready to be the prime minister of Great Britain on May 10th, 1940. And finally, number five, the man who didn't stand upon ceremony. 
he wasn't too good for hard labor. There are some stories that I'm just about to cover that are really profound. You see, there are certain expectations of leadership, of royalty, and of those that are in the government that they don't uh, get their fingernails dirty. They don't get mud on their clothing. They are supposed to allow other people to do that for them. Isn't that what servants are for? And yet Churchill just approaches things differently. He's sort of the common man's guy where he isn't afraid to get dirty. He isn't afraid to get dirt underneath his fingernails. He recognizes that that's what is essential to properly lead, to not be aloof in some royal palace, but to actually go down amongst the rubble. Walter Thompson was his security uh, guard, so he went everywhere with Winston Churchill. And I have a quote from his diary, which, I don't know, again, one of my favorite things about history is to be able to go back and see things that I have no business seeing, like Walter Thompson's diary. Why should I be able to peek inside of that? And here I am sharing it with the world, right? And yet, that's what happens when you get far enough away and these people pass away, then things like diaries suddenly open up and become accessible and you're able to learn things that you wouldn't have been able to know at the time. So this is what Walter Thompson said. This is during the Battle of Britain in 1940 when uh, the German Luftwaffe, the Air Force, is bombing London. Every day, Winston Churchill would go out into the rubble and he would be with the people. And this is, what it, this is what Walter Thompson wrote down. Winston went down on his knees to clutch a woman who, still conscious, was being dug out. For a moment, they looked at one another. Winston, with his coat and trousers splattered with mud, the woman covered from head to foot in dust. Then, with a tremor in her voice, she thanked him and was taken away by friends. There goes greatness, said Winston. Tears were streaming down his face. There were many occasions when he would silently, without shame or embarrassment, weep for many minutes. I don't know, the, the fact that that's written in a diary, and it's not written for publication, it wasn't written for a book, it wasn't written for some marketing campaign, uh, it just, it has a, an, a ring of authenticity to it that is really profound to just, it's like, I want to be caught doing that. And that's the way I want to be seen by anyone who's hanging out with me. Am I willing to go into the rubble and lead there as opposed to lead from some high up position with a silver spoon in my mouth? Winston Churchill said this, after the first 40 days we were alone with victorious Germany and Italy engaged in a mortal attack upon us with Soviet Russia, a hostile neutral, actively aiding Hitler and Japan, an unknowable menace. What a, what a dark situation he finds himself in. So I'm going to give another list. Five things Churchill did that inspired the world. Number one, he didn't have fear in the crisis. Now, if you've hung out with me, you know my passion for what we could call fearlessness. It is not just something that is natural to us as humans. We are naturally cowards. And yet God has given us something. He's given us himself as a refuge. He's given us himself as armor. And we have a shield of faith that repels all the fiery darts of the evil one. If you knew that every fiery dart would be repelled, why would you fear a fiery dart? Fear actually is an irrational and illogical conclusion for a Christian when they know their position in Jesus Christ. And so I'm a big fan of this quality. Number one, he didn't have fear in the crisis. If there was ever a crisis where fear would be totally logical, totally reasonable, it would be this one. And yet Winston Churchill, 
mocks it. He's going to stand on the roof. He's supposed to be down in a bomb shelter uh, during the bombing raids at night in London. And everyone's looking around, where's Winston? Where's Winston? And someone goes up and there he is on the top of the roof watching with curiosity the Luftwaffe as they enter into London. Winston, get down. You're not supposed to be up here. I mean, the national security of, of England is at stake. Here's a great quote. So remember, I introduced you to Inspector Thompson. He's the, the bodyguard uh, for Winston Churchill. He went everywhere with him. And Winston Churchill wanted to go out and get a drink. Uh, and it was, it was his daily custom. And yet the problem with that is the Germans are bombing London. This isn't a time to go out and go uh, get a drink. And so Churchill uh, says this to Inspector Thompson. You know, when Inspector Thompson's like, Churchill or Winston, I don't remember what he called him. Winston, Winston, you can't do this. You need to come back to the bomb shelter. And Winston Churchill looks at him and he says, I have someone else other than you looking out for me. And Inspector Thompson says, you mean Sergeant Davis, sir? And Churchill uh, says no and points his finger upward toward heaven. I have a mission to perform. And that person intends to see that it is performed. It's, a, it's just a great picture. In other words, he's not afraid of bombs. He knows he has a job to do. And he's not afraid of the Luftwaffe accidentally killing him. He knows that he is on a mission. He knows that he is, as he said, walking with destiny. And as a result, he has no fear. Why should you fear if you are surrounded as with a shield? Number two. He wouldn't flee for his life. So these are the, the elements that greatly inspired the world. You see, what a man in his position is supposed to do when his nation is being invaded is he's supposed to flee for his life and find a refuge in a neighboring country, in a safe place so he can still rule and still make decisions, but he doesn't need to be in the middle of it, standing on rooftops, for instance. And yet he wouldn't flee. And this example of not fleeing inspired also the English royalty to stay put as well. And no one left. And this so inspired the people of that country to know that Winston would not leave, even though every one of his counselors was saying, you must get out for the safety of England. You must spare yourself. And yet he would not leave. I love that. Number three, he would walk amongst the rubble every day and be with the people. Now, I mentioned that, but just to ponder that, that's, a, that's such a Jesus illustration there, and I, I am so inspired by that. Number four, he would speak words of hope and victory constantly. Every word you're going to hear him say publicly is a word of hope. He never once, he knew how dark it was. He did. And yet he knew that it was imperative that he gave his people hope. They had to have a sense of hope if they were going to keep their head up, if they were going to keep fighting, if they were going to keep standing. And that's what he gave them. And boy, did the world need that at this time. And finally, number five, he did not waffle, bend, or compromise. It's just a great list. And so this entire message is just chock full of some great summary statements. So here's a guy, his name is Harold Nicholson. Uh, he was a junior member of the Churchill government. And two days prior uh, to uh, what would have been the, uh, uh, the escape from uh, Dunkirk, which is it's oftentimes called the miracle of Dunkirk, it says two days prior, he had his wife prepare suicide pills because he was convinced the Germans were going to win. So, and this is what he says. 
my darling, how infectious courage is. This is the impact of Winston Churchill. How infectious courage is. I'm rendered far more in heart and confidence by such bravery. Now, I don't know where I got this picture from. If you're seeing the video, you're sort of like, what kind of picture is that? I I don't know I, if I did a Google search for Nellie Last. Uh, I thought her name was Fast, Nellie Fast, but for whatever reason, it's coming up there as Nellie Last. But that's a picture. It's a terrible picture. But you could watch the video just to see uh, this 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 picture is not very good. But this is what Nellie Last or Nellie Fast said. I forgot I was a middle-aged woman that woke up tired and often with a backache. This story made me feel a part of something that was undying and never old. And that was the escape, the miracle at Dunkirk. Winston Churchill says this. This is one of his famous speeches. You might recognize it. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight in the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Winston Churchill's—the guy's name is Winston Churchill, but it's the grandson of the Winston Churchill that we know— and this is what he said, I'm convinced that but for Winston Churchill, the Nazi swastika to this day would be flying over every capital city as far east as Moscow. David Ben-Gurion was the first prime minister of Israel when Israel was once again uh, made into a nation. He said this about Winston Churchill, Winston Churchill lifted an entire nation out of the depths of humiliation and defeat, instilled in them the spiritual strength to stand against heavy odds. If not for Churchill, England would have gone down. So I want to switch now to, which that's all very impressive, and I am inspired by it. However, there is one that inspires me so much more, and his name is Jesus Christ. And I would like to show you the same sort of model, but at a heightened level. What Winston Churchill did was marvelous. What Jesus did is, you know, a thousand, a million times and so, leading in the dark, the Jesus model. The unfair challenge. The impossible leadership position that Jesus Christ was thrust into. So, Winston Churchill had it rough. Well, Jesus Christ <laughs> had it rougher. Leadership challenge number one. The world is lost and slaved to sin. And guess what? They don't even know it. That's the extra kicker on it. Is there's, They're lost in darkness, but they love their darkness. They don't even realize it is darkness. It's sort of tough to save people that don't know their need for salvation. Leadership challenge number two. The people entrusted with the word, the Jewish people, are sharply divided and more interested in debating than in repenting. Boy, does that sound like Great Britain when Winston Churchill uh, took hold. Leadership challenge number three. The people he was coming to save wanted him to save them from the power of Rome. But the power of Rome was not their biggest problem. What he needed to save them from was sin. However, they wanted him to save them from Rome. And since he wasn't looking like he was going to do that, they weren't interested in some Messiah that was weak, that wasn't a military leader like they envisioned. Leadership challenge number four, the Roman government deemed him a threat, a political rabble-rouser. 
Leadership challenge number five, the Jewish religious leaders deemed him a blaspheming demon-controlled nutcase. Leadership challenge number six, even those that did believe him were paralyzed with deafening social pressure to remain silent. Leadership challenge number seven, there was a traitor in his midst that was money-hungry. Leadership challenge number eight, his disciples were all bark and no bite. They were more likely to desert than stand firm. That makes you feel rather strong as a leader, doesn't it? Leadership challenge number nine, the Jewish people were easily swayed. They could be conned to think that a Barabbas was more worthy of release than a loving Christ. Isn't that a great statement of just the times and that? But I would say that's the way we feel today that the Jewish people were easily swayed. You felt that even with the modern church, that it's easily conned. And they could be conned to think that a Barabbas was more worthy of release than a loving Christ. And finally, leadership challenge number 10, Satan was licking his chops. He finally had the trap set and he was ready to pounce on the Son of God and silence him. Now, if you know the story, it's going to get darker before it gets lighter. And it, but it's going to get really dark. In Gethsemane, when he has uh, you know, Roman soldiers coming out to get him and to arrest him, I mean, this is not a pretty sight, right? And when, when that contingent is coming, and even his closest, his closest three, Peter, James, and John, are asleep, it's like, it's so disheartening and discouraging. It probably feels a little like May 10th, 1940. And yet Jesus never loses hope. He knows that as he entrusts himself into the Father's hands, he knows that there's victory on the other side of this. Let's finish with this scripture, Ephesians 4, 8, and then 11 through 16. I want us to watch how the leadership of Jesus functions. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see, what we are witnessing in Christ is a stature. It is a picture. It is an example of something that God wants to build in us. But we need him to impart something to us. And that's exactly what Ephesians 4 is describing. That he has given us that which we need to grow up unto a full maturity. So that when the dark seasons come in our lives, so when those challenging moments uh, come to us, that we can rise up and showcase the strength of heaven instead of the frailty of humanity. Let's keep reading that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Jesus Christ has given us an example. He has gone before us and set a pattern of a godly man. Now, it sounds funny because he's God, but he is going to come and live in a man's body, and he's going to live out that perfect life. Now, he could have just lived out that perfect life and then waved at us and said, yeah, give it a shot. You can try your best to see if you can be like that. But he doesn't do that because he knows we don't have the capacity to follow him. So he gave us himself, his very spirit, to live inside of us, 
so that we, when we face our challenge, can actually not try and drum something up in our own humanity, but that we can turn to him. And out of that well, we can actually cause these hands to do what his hands would do, these feet to do what his feet would do, this heart to beat with the burdens that beat in his chest, these eyes to see the needs that he sees, these no- this nose to sniff out and to discern what he would, these ears to hear what he would hear, this mind to think what he would think, and this mouth to speak what he would speak. We are called to be the body of Christ, but we are not just called, we are equipped. Faithful is he who has called us who also will do it. Our God will. The reason I built this series, this little micro-series that gives us a glimpse into the happenings and the beginnings of World War II, yes, it's because I love this season and I love to talk about this season, but there's also a greater importance to it, and that's the personal application to all of us. You see, in 1939, going into 1940, Great Britain is weak. It doesn't seem like there's a hope and a future for this country. And right now, May 10th, 1940 is going to be a turning point, but not immediately. You're not going to see everything change immediately, but there is going to be a man that steps in. And the same thing is true in our life. When that man, known as Jesus Christ, steps into leadership and we give him the prime minister position, we give him the throne, we give him access to all of this, this resource. We're not a country, but we're sort of like it. We have resource. We have strengths. We have gifts. We have time. We have energy. We have life. And when we give that to him, he can utilize it. But oftentimes we stare at the darkness around us and we're despondent. And we are thinking about how impossible the odds are and how obvious it seems that the enemy is going to win this thing. But we need to remember who we serve. And we need to, in the midst of this, allow God to speak words of truth and life and hope to us, just the way Winston Churchill spoke that to his nation. And we need him to live in and through us because we are not called to just watch someone rise up and influence a culture. We are called to be that. We are called to be the influencers. What is going to happen in 1940 is going to be a reviving of a nation. Winston Churchill, at this exact time, is going to recognize with 70% of his military strength surrounded in Dunkirk by the Nazis and looking like there's, there's certain defeat up ahead, he's going to call for a national day of prayer. In all of World War I, there was only one national day of prayer, and it actually turned the course of history. And so he's going to start out World War II by learning from World War I. And he's going to say, without God's intervention, we're sunk. But if we go to what it says in Chronicles, if we listen to what God has promised his people, you see, we have a land that needs to be healed. Well, how do you get a healed land? If his people, who are called by his name, will humble themselves and they will pray and seek his face and they will turn from their wicked ways, then he will heal their land. And that's exactly what God did in 1940. You see, we crave, those of you that listen to me have to be of a similar ilk, I'm guessing at least, that you want to see the church strong again. You desire to see the muscle, the majesty of the Most High return to the stage of time. Well, what we need to do is we need to allow the Spirit of God to start with each one of us. Yes, we want him to work on the national level, But first, he has to work on the personal level. Every great revival starts with one person at a time. 
and God builds upon that. And that's where the momentum comes from. The great movement of grace works through individuals, not just through chunks of people. And so each of us must humble ourselves. We must pray and seek his face. We must turn from our wicked ways so that he can heal us. And when each of us is going through that process, guess what? There's a ripple effect and something will change in this world around us. I'm convinced this is God's desire. I'm convinced it's God's design. The enemy is not going to win, even though right now it looks like it's a slam dunk that he's going to. Watch what my God will do. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.